You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to another geopolitics special of the Inside China podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor of the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, stepping in for my colleague Holly Chick while she's been called away on assignment. And I'm bringing you a special multinational gathering of reporters and editors this week to try and make sense of a very, very busy two weeks of high-level meetings and diplomatic announcements from China, the US, Europe and more. In this episode, we're going to hop from Sweden to Hong Kong to Washington DC and finally to Beijing and analyze the concerted campaign of diplomacy being launched by Beijing across Europe, including the announcement of its emissary Li Hui charged with helping to broker a peace deal between Ukraine and Russia. You'll hear about his background, why he's quite well known to Vladimir Putin, and why some in Beijing are already declaring a diplomatic victory. But you'll also hear about the work being done by Wang Yi and Qin Gang as China tries to shore up its relationships with Europe. And conversely, we'll hear why the EU is showing a lot of interest in Asia. Or to be more specific, East Asia, including the Taiwan Strait, the East China Sea, and the South China Sea. And you'll also hear me ask, exactly what does de-risking from China mean? You're going to hear from Finbar Birmingham, Rob Delaney, and Xi Jingtao, who've all been working hard to get the insights being shared by diplomats and analysts alike, as Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida pursues a very determined approach to put Taiwan and Ukraine at the top of the agenda for this week's G7 meeting in Hiroshima. You'll have heard already the hot takes following Joe Biden's cancellation of his visit to Papua New Guinea and to Sydney for the Quad meeting. You'll want to pay close attention when Rob Delaney is speaking because we get into how the freak show that is US domestic politics is starting to increasingly affect Washington's geopolitics and its ability to maintain diplomatic relationships. And having substantially edited this episode as a result of sudden cancellations, a reminder to always check in with scmp.com for the latest news and updates as we head into this G7 weekend. Let's get amongst it. Finbar Birmingham is our European correspondent and has spent the entire weekend chasing around after European diplomats at the Indo-Pacific Conference in Stockholm. It's a week where China's Foreign Minister Qin Gang has himself been racking up their frequent flyer points across Europe. Fimba, welcome back. Hey, Jared. Let's start with this Indo-Pacific Forum. This meeting was billed as discussing the, quote, evolving security landscape in the Indo-Pacific. But Fimba, it sounds like another meeting where China looms large but is not named. What did you learn? Yeah, it is the second annual Indo-Pacific Forum that the European Union has organised. And I guess the overarching aim of these things is to um, find areas of of mutual cooperation and collaboration with countries from East Africa, Asia-Pacific, and also to discuss areas of of shared concern. Um, And so, of course, China fits in, uh, you know, on both of those fronts economically, hugely important and in security terms some of those who are in the room were really concerned about china as well um china wasn't invited and the official reason is that um that china doesn't recognize these various indo-pacific frameworks and so there's no point in inviting them to you know to something that it doesn't say is um is legitimate but it did, it, you know, it was obviously there, the elephant in the room for a lot of this stuff, as well as, uh, you know, Ukraine also loomed over a lot of this as well. Now, it's worth um, reiterating that this is a, a very broad church of countries that were invited. Some of them are very close to China, others not so much. So you had, for example, representatives from Pakistan and, and Laos, both countries who are incredibly uh, close with China and on the other hand, the Japanese, Koreans, Australians, and so on, who are much more hawkish. The Japanese foreign minister, Hayashi, gave a really, really vociferous speech on Saturday, lashing out at China's, what he described, unilateral changing of the status quo in the South and East China Seas. And uh, it's, um, I think he described it as its increased military cooperation with Russia. Um, so the EU, realizing that this was a fairly... Uh, you know, ragtag bunch of countries with various degrees of of uh, of you know relationship with China, and they, they they were quite 
um, careful in the run-up to this to say this is not about China, nor is it about Taiwan, and nor is it about Ukraine, because of course a lot of these countries have not condemned Russia. There's a, you know also a diversity of views on that front. Um, you know, one one diplomat said to me last week, well, the reason these things aren't the, on the agenda is because we want these countries to come back next year. You know, we can't can't ram it down their throats. That was the that was the um, the objective from the the outset. However, I wonder how successful that was because at the last minute they decided to invite uh, Dimitro Kuleba, or at least it was decided it was announced that he was going to attend. He was billed to us um, that we were told on the Wednesday before this that there was a surprise guest coming to t- coming to the summit that will only be announced uh, you know in the hours before. So we knew, of course, it was going to be somebody from Ukraine because they're quite careful with travel itineraries. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'm not sure how closely uh, everybody was kept in the loop, but it did really mean that Ukraine um, sort of overshadowed everything. It, it meant that when ministers from around the Indo-Pacific and the EU were arriving at this, Ukraine was the first question they were asked, um, maybe uncomfortably for some I guess overall, a bit of a talking shop. No, nothing, you know, was established in terms of a joint statement or conclusions or anything legislatively or anything like that. But, but yeah, it was it was an interesting place to be. Good to chat to some of these ministers and diplomats. And um, yeah, as I said, lot, lots of awkward moments about China and and Ukraine. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that and the surprise that was delivered to the attendees of this meeting, there was another announcement that landed in the middle of that, and that was the announcement from Beijing on Friday of Li Hui, China's emissary to Ukraine, was being dispatched. You were talking to senior EU officials about that time. What kind of response did you hear? Yeah, it was one of the first questions I asked a lot of people that I spoke to over the space of a few days. Um, had a chance to sit down with uh, Joseph Burrell, who's EU's top diplomat. His point of view was uh, something along the lines of, we have been, we welcome this because we've um, been asking China to to get involved with and to speak to Ukraine for a long time. So, you know, you can't really then, once China starts talking to Ukraine, you, you know, you have to be happy about that, I guess. Um, but man- expectations, I think, are, are well managed. Um, you know, the, the, the EU is quite dismissive of the Chinese peace position paper and very much promotes Zelensky's peace plan. Um, but they're looking at this, and I spoke to a Polish minister about this and had a similar response. I mean, Polish Poland is perhaps Europe's among the most hawkish countries towards Russia. Um, and so they were the minister was skeptical about what sort of role China could play in the peace talks, but they also are looking at taking the lead from Ukraine. I mean, if, if Zelensky is happy to engage with this, then, I mean, that's the sort of bottom line. Um, but I think it's fair to say that expectations are are managed. They they look at what Beijing put out in, in February in terms of its 12-point position paper and, and note that it um, doesn't differentiate between the aggressor and the aggressed, in Borrell's words. Um, and, and, so, and so that's the sort of starting point. I spoke with Derek Chole as well, who's... Um, Anthony Blinken's um, senior advisor on um, foreign policy, and similarly, you know, he says, "Well, broadly speaking, we will we welcome the engagement." But I think he said his expect he has modest expectations of any any sort of breakthrough. But everybody's watching carefully. You know, it comes on the eve of the G seven, and um, you know, he's also going to to Moscow, Lihue. Um, I think he's coming to some um, EU capitals as well. So we were waiting to see what comes out of this. Um, you know, everybody's, um, I suppose, ho- hopeful, but not terribly optimistic. Well, let me take you back to what was discussed, particularly by the European ministers. This one particular word, this line we heard from Ursula von der Leyen, de-risking. De-risking from China. What does that actually mean? Good question. <laughs> and you get a different answer if you speak to 100 people, you get 100 different answers. This is a word that seems to have caught on. The US is using it, Janet Yellen, Jake Sullivan. Uh, the UK is sort of edging in, in that direction. Uh, and part of me thinks that the reason why it's um, caught on so well is because it's so vague that it can mean whatever you want it to mean. 
Um, it definitely doesn't mean decoupling. I mean, that's the second part of the sentence that everybody says, de-risking, not decoupling. Okay, what does it mean? And what does it mean in, in policy terms? We will learn more about that next month when the EU puts out a um, a joint proposal or joint communication, some, some sort of a joint thingy that they're that they're going to to put together on de-risking. I mean the 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 broad contours of this is that it it means that you're trying to be less dependent on China for what are called critical um dependent critical commodities rather um that you're you're diversifying um away from from risky dependencies. So they point to the likes of lithium and you know th- things like lithium and, and and many rare earth minerals and and other critical like cobalt and all these things that are used um, to make high tech goods that will power the industry of the future. The lion's share, more than ninety percent of what Europe uses, comes from China. Either it's mined there or it's processed there, and that's unsustainable. So de-risking is about diversifying away from that. But also on the other way, going the other way, it's about um, trying to control and restrict and manage, um, you know, the transfer of critical high-tech goods to China. So in areas like quantum computing and artificial intelligence and, um, you know, the Europeans want to um, restrict in some way companies from European companies from investing in these sectors so that the technology isn't transferred there and then perhaps can be used for military purposes and so on. Those are the two broad um, pillars of of what, at least what the Europeans have have proposed from de-risking. One of the key points that they keep ramming down our throats is that this is not about general trade. General trade is fine. So when Macron went and signed a bunch of deals, in China, at the same time that von der Leyen was there talking about de-risking, you know, some officials are trying to say, well, the, the two aren't mutually incompatible because de-risking only affects like a minute portion of trade. The optics weren't great, obviously, you know, it didn't, didn't look like they were on on message on the same page. But I think when, when one, one thing to add on, on de-risking, Jared, is that um, uh, you know, I, I said how it means something different to everybody. I mean, fresh from uh, talking about de-risking with EU partners in Stockholm, I just saw this morning that the Hungarian foreign ministers in China signing deals with Huawei. I mean, if you were to speak to probably the other 26 um, EU member states and ask them, how, how does that uh, fit with the overall approach of de-risking? They probably would say that it doesn't. But of course, um, you know, Hungary's uh, always willing to, you know, plough its own furrow when it comes to these things. Um, and, and to me, that that shows a little bit about uh, the disconnect that we have when member states generally agree on broad concepts of de-risking and what it might mean in practice. But, you know, this is a point that they're careful to make to their Chinese counterparts as well, is that this is not about, you know, upsetting the overall apple cart vis-a-vis trade. It's just about de-risking <laughs> it's just about de-risking come on i'm falling into the same trap of using i've been here for two years and i'm already sort of just swimming in the soup of, of jargon it's just about making sure that certain things aren't um you know putting the economy at risk let me step in and, and try and prevent save me from myself and from brussels <laughs> well let me try let me try to let me try and step in and prevent uh, death by buzzword there. Uh, there is a, uh, a four-letter word uh, being used in China, and there's been some previous discussion or comment from various quarters in Beijing that the Quad is aiming to be a new NATO. Let's flip that around. You know, Last week on Wednesday, we had the meeting that NATO is setting up shop in Japan. Was there any discussion of this at the meeting? There wasn't any discussion about this, at least not that I heard. Um, EU and NATO have a bit of a sort of, you know, they, they don't tend to discuss each other at the meetings. There's a bit of right, bit of tension there, let's say. But interestingly, Japan has taken a real interest in what's going on here in Europe. I took the plane back from Stockholm last night and I was with a journalist from a Japanese newspaper who was saying that the, they splashed uh, on their front page the EU's talks about China policy. And I was surprised. Well, 
big Japanese daily newspaper is super interested in these fairly esoteric talks about European China policy. But I guess it goes to show, as the Japanese minister said on the foreign minister said on Saturday, that they don't see that necessarily the the geopolitical risks are in two different theaters. And this is also the way the United States looks at it: single theater, Russia, Taiwan. Asia Pacific, Ukraine, you know, they, they, they see this all as, as you know, different parts of the same battle. NATO issues is obviously something that's um, that's mightily pissed off the Chinese. And, you know, they talk about it encroaching on, on their territory and so on. Um, but I think that's only going to keep growing. Um, the next NATO summit's in July and it's in Lithuania. So we we know very well from our previous discussions how they feel about China. Um, so they're going to make sure that China's high on the agenda in Vilnius. I get the sense that um, after for the first time really inviting Asia Pacific partners to NATO last year, this thing's going to keep rolling. We're going to see more and more cooperation and collaboration in China and issues pertaining to China are going to be the norm at NATO events from, from here on in. Barbara, I mean, it sounds like there's a lot going on in your world, in our world, as we race towards the G7 this week. We'll find you on Twitter for more of your updates and, of course, on scmp.com. Thank you very much. Cheers, Jared. Have a good one. Koala Shu is my colleague on the China desk at the South China Morning Post. Koala, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, same thing, Jared. Good to be on it again. It's nearly three weeks since China's President Xi Jinping placed a phone call to Ukraine and President Vladimir Zelensky. And in that call, he promised to dispatch an envoy to Ukraine to help find a peaceful solution to the ongoing war. What can you tell us about this person, Koala, this emissary that Beijing has announced? What do we know about Li Hui? Yeah, so Li Hui has decades of experience, um, basically uh, mainly working as the Chinese point man in the Eastern Europe and Central Asia region. So uh, I think most notably, he spent 10 years as the um, ambassador to Russia between 2009 and 2019, and is a very familiar face to Russian past president uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, he's also a fluent Russian, Russian speaker. Um, so, and he has also previously served as the head of the um, Eastern European and Central Asian Affairs Department under the Foreign Ministry. Um, and Li Hui, um, he joined the Chinese Chinese Foreign Ministry um, um, Department of Soviet and East European Affairs in 1975, um, at a time when Beijing and Moscow were close to war. And he has devoted his entire career basically to handling China's relationship with the Soviet Union and its successors uh, and its successor states. Um, he was also previously a Vice Foreign Minister of China. Uh, which gives him more weight to his uh, message than normal ambassadors. So one of the Chinese foreign policy experts actually told us that his position in terms of his diplomatic ranking among Chinese, uh, Chinese diplomats uh, will be high enough uh, for him to represent, represent President Xi Jinping himself to, to handle the Ukraine issues at this critical stage. It's interesting you mentioned his career, Kuala, that he spent 10 years as ambassador. That would include being in Moscow during 2014, that initial invasion of Crimea. But I'm also curious, he wasn't just sent into Ukraine either. Uh, Li Hui is also headed to Poland, France, Germany, and of course, Russia. And the question I guess we ask is, what does success look like for Beijing? What does Beijing want him to achieve? So I think some of the analysts that, that we talked to that China chose Poland, France and Germany and Russia, of course, um, as some of um, the destinations this time during Li Hui's trip is because one of the reasons is Poland, France and Germany, they are all NATO countries. So they are supporting Ukraine at this moment, especially supporting it through sending arms to it as well. So China's position is it often criticized NATO for, for escalating the war by arming Ukraine. So these are Poland, France and Germany. Germany. These are important countries countries to talk to as Ukraine right now is preparing for a, a large scale spring offensive at the moment. Um, so China does definitely does not want the war to continue to escalate. So China kind of realized that it's an important moment to, to talk to these relevant countries at this point. France would be a key factor um, in this process too, because President Xi Jinping just met with French President Emmanuel Macron in Beijing, and they had a very positive exchange according to a lot of uh, observers. So um, despite China's relations with the EU at large, 
large uh, are being largely uh, largely strained. So President Xi and President Macron, the two agreed to work together in Beijing when they met in Beijing in finding a solution for for Ukraine. So it would be very interesting to see that what will come out after Li Hui meets Macron, possibly or other French officials during his trip. And um, for Russia, um, because we already mentioned that Li Hui, it's um, also widely seen as something that uh, Vladimir Putin would trust. So some observers said that he will be able to achieve, achieve something constructive uh, when he talked to Putin. But we don't know what that would be because China's always says that it's not a direct party of the war. And they already bring out a 12 point police plan, uh, which is being the only country right now bringing some sort of a peace proposal that uh, both Russia and Ukraine said they will consider. So, and some people, uh, some analysts pointed out that um, when Li Hui met with um, uh, Putin, um, China will probably not go that far to raise unrealistic demands, such as asking Putin to withdraw from Ukraine, something like that. Uh, because I think China, it's very clear that if Russia and Ukraine are not ready to sit down and talk, they will very, very less that they can do. And the experts said they also don't believe China has that motive or capability to further mediate between um, Russia and Ukraine if the two are not ready to talk. Well, that's a very good point you make there, that it's kind of hard to get people to talk about peace settlement if they just refuse to stop shooting at each other. I note also that Wang Wenbin on Friday upon announcing Li Hui's mission really showed how China's putting a lot in this to demonstrate that it's the leader in international diplomacy here. It is the leader in in the, the push for a peace plan. But what about the analysts in Beijing, Kuala? What about the people you are speaking to? How are they going to judge this mission being given to, to Li Hui? Yeah, it's a very interesting point that, that you just mentioned, um, Jared, because I think um, China's successful brokering of peace between Saudi Arabia and Iran recently uh, really gave a lot of people a high hopes that um, they hope that China could do the same to repeat that same success to Russia and Ukraine. Uh, but it's complicated. Um, Russia and Ukraine are not in the same situation as um, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, I think the, the, the basic point that we already mentioned is that basically the both, both sides are just not ready to talk. So there are very little that China can, can do at this point. So I think um, the Chinese analysts told me that they are also being realistic. I think China, it's also, they said China is being realistic about what it's able to achieve during uh, Li Hui's trip this time. We have to wait and see whether China would present something further beyond its 12-point peace plan. But the Chinese analysts said it's unlikely because that's already a um, the 12 point peace plan in China's world. It's, it's already a framework that they presented that will lead to a gradual ceasefire between uh, Russia and Ukraine through peace talks. So the key word in there is peace talks. So and if the two sides, Russia and Ukraine, are not ready, then there are very little space for, for China to get in. And China is realistic about that. Well, along with Chin Gang's tour across Europe to speak to many of its leaders, it looks like there is a lot going on in the world of Chinese diplomacy. Koala Sher, thank you for your time, and we'll look for your reports and analysis on SEMP.com. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Jared. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Rob Delaney is the North American Bureau Chief for the South China Morning Post, based in Washington, D.C., Great to have you back on the mic, Rob. Great to be here, Jared. So let's start with this meeting between Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi last week in Vienna. How do you measure the success of these meetings? Rob, what has come out of this and how has it been assessed? It's sort of, I think it took everyone off guard because there has just been so much hostility. There are so many outstanding issues that just appear unresolved and unresolvable. And so uh, there's, of course, we did have a couple of rhetorical olive branches that came from the U.S. side. There was, of course, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who uh, gave a speech in which her her main point was that the Biden administration is not seeking confrontation. Uh, she's really the note she was hitting was just about the importance 
of, of supply chain resiliency. Uh, then there was, of course, the uh, meetings between uh, U.S. Ambassador to Beijing, uh, Nick Burns, who had met with uh, China's Commerce Minister uh, also, uh, and that came after meeting with Foreign Minister Qin Gang. But aside from those meetings, there, there still had been so much uh, hostility on a, a bipartisan level uh, in in the U.S. So I guess this came out so quickly, and there was no there were no leaks about this coming out in in any uh, media outlet. So what a lot of people were suggesting was that this was just showed how quickly this came together, this meeting, and. Uh, they made that point. There was a Biden administration official who was briefing reporters in Washington about the meeting uh, later in the day after the two statements were released. And they made that point. They said, well, you saw uh, that th there were no leaks on this, and that's because the meeting came together fairly quickly. So it seems to be that both sides are at a critical point where they realized that the, the direction that were going, the speed at which they were moving were uh, were a bit too much and were a bit too threatening. And so there was just overall analysts are seeing there's an apparent move on both sides to try to slow this down, to try and bring the level of the heat down. Yet at the same time, no one is discounting the difficulty that the boat that both sides face in trying to keep that direction going. And, and one of the, the several reasons on that front, of course, we've got Biden going to uh, Hiroshima this week. And then we ex we fully expect in that G7 meeting a lot about uh, what they're calling Chinese economic coercion. And then, of course, he goes down to Sydney, uh, where he will uh, well, he'll engage in the Quad Summit, uh, also a meeting that is not going to please Beijing uh, very much. And on top of all of this, we have expectations that the Biden administration is going to come out with details of their outbound uh, investment screening mechanism, which is sort of a reverse version of CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which itself does not single out any particular country, but everyone understands, especially in the way that its powers were expanded back in 2019, very much because that's when the concerns about uh, China's uh, acquisition of of advanced U.S. technologies was sort of front and center. So there's kind of there, there's a lot coming up. It's it's a very interesting point we're we're at now because of these recent engagements. Uh, as as you mentioned, the 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 Sullivan uh, Wang Yi meeting, and and prior to that, several high level uh, Biden administration officials uh, wanting to signaling a desire to en to engage and and. Uh, but at the same time, having a, a number of developments just on the horizon, which will, which, which can only inflame tensions between the two sides. It's a hectic couple of weeks we're seeing here. And it's very interesting. Rob, I have to ask you this. A month or two ago, I asked you a question about a balloon. And you said, don't ask me that right now. <laughs> I have to ask you this. Out of all of this meeting... Is it right to see this as both sides agreeing not to talk about the salvage wreckage of a balloon and just move on? Can I ask you that? I don't know that there's there will be any formal agreement to not discuss the balloon. And and I can say that it, it's very interesting how the balloon, while let's say up until a month, a month and a half ago, it was it, every every conversation, every hearing about China started uh, seemed to almost start and end talking about the balloon. It's it's kind of gone to ground now, and it will come up occasionally. Every once in a while, a, a question pops up around, "Okay, so you shot down the balloon, you got you salvaged the wreckage. When are we going to get a report about what it contained?" and so there, there seems to be some jostling behind the scenes about how public the Biden administration is going to make their findings about the balloon. And it, it's difficult to know what's behind that. <laughs> you know, I, I think people are scratching their heads thinking there, there wasn't much surprising that they found. Or was it so surprising that it's gone totally top secret and even the even the hardest line Republicans are per, perhaps will understand that more study needs to be done on it. it. It's really hard to say, but it's that 
incident has kind of quieted down. And I will ask you again about this, you know, this intersection of, you know, the domestic kind of superheated MAGA politics and, you know, relationships with China. We've seen you know, reported from our colleague Kushbu Razdan issues of, you know, Chinese ownership of land near uh, military bases becoming a political issue. Uh, then there's the pr- proposed DeSantis bill coming in targeting Chinese people included in the groups of people listed for restrictions on land ownership. This anti-China issue is becoming many issues. How are you seeing that becoming part of the domestic political agenda? Yes, well, that's a good question because not only do you have, as I was saying earlier, you've got the Biden administration engaging in G7, engaging in the Quad, uh, likely coming out with a uh, outbound investment uh, screening uh, body. Yeah, and absolutely, in Congress, you've got a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, for example, is is pushing a lot of their rhetoric about China, which is, of course. A, much more uh, pointed and much more extreme than what the Biden administration is coming out with. And one interesting development last week was on the day that we had the two sides announce the uh, the, the meeting between uh, Jake Sullivan and, and Wang Yi, there was a uh, House uh, Foreign Affairs uh, subcommittee hearing on export controls. And to sort of to give you a, a sense of the the rhetoric within Congress, so and, and which of course will give you a better uh, read on what the Republican Party is thinking. Uh, you had at this particular subcommittee meeting, it's about export controls, and the point that the chair, the chair of this particular sub subcommittee, is uh, Brian Mast. He's a representative in Florida, and he, he, really his position was just anything. If it comes to technology, if it comes to uh, semiconductor chips, why are we issue? Why is Treasury Department issuing any waivers at all for anything to go from the U.S. to China? And he started really bringing in very soaring rhetoric around how this is a danger for uh, for all of the U.S. armed forces. And he even gave this quote. He said, "Remember, we're not looking for a fight." That was Biden's statement. So Brian Mast is sort of using the statement that Biden was making that we're not looking for a fight. And then he goes on. But as the great General Patton said, real Americans love to fight. They love the clash and the sting of battle. Uh, this <laughs> this is sort dear, of a... Dear me. Yeah. yeah. So that, that, if that gives you a sense of... Uh, of, of of what sort of rhetoric is brewing uh, in, in different parts of the uh, U.S. government, it's, it's pretty much that. So Rob, we're talking about the different levels of diplomats talking between China and the US after this increasingly hostile period, an issue that we have spoken about for some time, if not some years now, is the lack of official contact between the Chinese military and the US. That seems to be probably one of the more more high priority things you'd want to be happening between these two countries right now. Have you heard anything on that front? Well, there's there's word circulating that uh, the Pentagon wants to set up this meeting between uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and uh, Chinese uh, Defense Minister Li Shangfu. And that would be if that happens, it would be during the Shangri-La uh, dialogue that's uh, scheduled for Singapore next month. Uh, we, we still don't know whether that's going to happen. Um, and, and as for further engagements, of, of course, when. Uh, when Biden administration officials were briefing the the media last week after the Wang Yi uh, Jake Sullivan meeting, uh, their their official comment right now is that uh, uh, they 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 said that there's no dates that they can give out, uh, th- and th- this question specifically was around whether. Uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken would reschedule his trip because if if you remember. Blinken was scheduled to go to to travel to Beijing the on the it was either the Saturday or the Sunday after the 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 Chinese balloon incident kind of blew everything up. So people are kind of looking for when that's going to get back on track. Now, uh, again, so when they're hit with that question, the administration officials say that they don't have a dates to discuss, but they said, quote, we do anticipate There'll be engagements in both directions over the coming months. Now, whether or not that means uh, it would be Austin meeting with Li Shangfu at Shangri-La, we're, we don't know yet. That's something that we'll be looking out for. 
Well, Rob Delaney, as long as the two countries are talking, at least we can hope that at least people are listening as well. We're always keen to hear and listen to you and we'll, of course, read your words on SEMP.com. Rob Delaney, Bureau Chief of the SEMP in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jared. It's been a week of very high-end diplomatic exchanges for China in Europe, with the US, with Central Asian countries and with Australia. And my colleague and diplomacy expert, Xi Jiangtao, has been kept very busy keeping up with it all. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Jared. So, Jiangtao, let's start with China's emissary to Ukraine. We've heard Koala Xi already tell us a bit about Li Hui's background, but can I ask you... What is the expectation being placed on him by Beijing? How long does he have to deliver some sort of result for peace in Ukraine? Uh, thank you, Jared. I think uh, Li Hui is on his first mediation trip this week, which is aimed at having in-depth communication with all parties on the political settlement of the Ukraine crisis, uh, as President Xi Jinping put it during his call with Zelensky on April 26th. So it's good to see China want to step up its involvement in international conflict mediation. But I have to say, hopes are not particularly high for Li Hui's trip and China's newfound peacemaking uh, role in the Ukraine crisis. Uh, Both Moscow and Kyiv have expressed little interest in the ceasefire at the moment. Zelensky said during a weekend trip to the Vatican that mediation in general will be impossible. And the Kremlin was more blunt last month when it said there was no prospect for China to mediate the Ukraine conflict. And also Europe has made made it very clear that uh, its ties with China would not return to normal unless Beijing helps to pressure Moscow to withdraw from Ukraine. So uh, for Li Hui, it's a tall order if Beijing is serious about making peace. But arguably, I would say, uh, Li Hui's trip itself is already a symbolic victory for China as it makes itself available as a global power and peace broker. As the Chinese expert Tong Zhao put it, China's growing interest in international mediation is partly due to an increasingly anti-American stance in its management of foreign policy and domestic public opinion. Beijing clearly sees an opening there, which shows Americans' influence is waning and is uh, is willing to take an active role to fill the void left by Washington. Uh, Tong Zhao is a senior fellow in Carnegie's uh, nuclear policy program and visiting research scholar at Princeton University's science and global security program. As you know, Jared Li Hui served as uh, China's ambassador. Uh, 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 Li Hui served as China's ambassador to Russia between uh, 2009 and 2019. So he was one of uh, he was China's second longest serving ambassador to a foreign country. A former American diplomat, Michael McFall, who served as U.S. ambassador to Russia between uh, 2012 and 2014, described Li Hui as a very talented diplomat on Twitter. But said Li was not neutral. McFall also urged the Biden administration to counter China's peacemaking diplomacy by appointing its own special envoy to Ukraine. Well, that would make a marked change for the U.S. policy because it seems to be just all about sending weapons to Ukraine. To send a peace emissary would indeed be a nice difference. Let's speak about another major point of difference, and that was the meeting held between Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi last week in Vienna. We're going to hear from Rob Delaney about the American perspective uh, on, on that meeting. But, Jiangtao, what was your reading of this meeting? Has the U.S., and China managed to resume something that we might call a pre-balloon level of communication? Are things back on track? It's a good question, Jared. I think there are two questions here when we look at uh, this kind of uh, diplomatic meetings and exchanges. Are things getting back to normal in the US-China relations when it comes to regular engagements and high-level exchanges that have been largely suspended for months? Uh, I think so, yes. That looks increasingly likely. But are we seeing any fundamental changes or breakthroughs on big issues that could stabilize their frosty ties? I don't think so. 
and it needs a bit uh, careful examination. The Vienna meeting between Wang and Sullivan was the highest level in-person talks since the G20 summit between Xi and Biden in Bali in November. The meeting itself was no doubt a success, as both sides, especially the Biden administration, have expressed willingness to move beyond the balloon saga, make efforts to stabilize ties, and resume high-level engagements. Uh, the Chinese readout uh, said the meeting was candid, in-depth, substantive, and constructive, as Wang Sullivan has had spent more than 10 hours of discussions in two days on removing obstacles in China-U.S. relations and stabilizing the relationship from deterioration. Why did it happen? Because after three months of the de facto freezing of official dialogue and exchanges, both sides feel the need to ease tensions, to allay widespread concerns about risks of miscalculations and even unintended conflicts. And uh, what's the next step in U.S.-China relations? Mm, many experts I talked to believe it could lead to the resumption of work-level dialogues between the two nations, a rescheduled visit by, uh, to China by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and similar cabinet-level exchanges such as those uh, planned between defense, trade, economic, and climate officials. It is also possible to see long, a long-awaited phone call between Xi Jinping and Biden in the next couple of weeks. And even Xi's visit to the U.S. to attend the uh, APEC summit in San Francisco in November. Let's go back to this meeting between Jake Sullivan and Wang Yi. We often hear that phrase, guardrails, in the relationship, uh, talking about trying to keep these two superpowers on track. Was there much discussion of that? Some analysts noted that uh, the Chinese and American readouts of the meeting were unusually similar, both in terms of their wording and the brevity of the statements. Uh, they said it could be one of the signs that uh, the two sides were serious about arresting the dangerous decline in bilateral ties, and they're still able to find consensus and, to, and cooperate when needed. It's also interesting that the Biden administration appears willing to make small symbolic concessions to accommodate Beijing's concerns in exchange of its cooperation in arranging such meetings. Uh, there have been reports that the White House chose to play down what the U.S. intel knows about the alleged Chinese spy blooms. And one of, Bi uh, and one of Biden's favorite terms in recent months, uh, guardrails, didn't make it to the White House statement after the meeting. As we know, Beijing and Washington clearly have different understanding of what Biden meant when he first used the term common sense guardrails in his virtual call with Xi Jinping in November 2021. For Biden's White House, guardrails basically mean a crisis management mechanisms to prevent its steep com competition with China tipping over into conflict or confrontation. But Washington will continue to do what has been doing to counter China by strengthening its global alliances, reducing economic and supply chain dependency on China, and providing weapons to help Taiwan guard itself. But for Beijing, guardrails have become an excuse for Washington's duplicity and double dealing on Taiwan and other sensitive issues while calling for dialogue and direct calls between top leaders. Uh, I think it's also interesting that China's state-controlled media were mostly cautious about the Wang Yi-Sullivan meeting and played down hopes about the resumption of high-level exchanges. In a commentary published the, the next day, uh, the official Xinhua News Agency lashed out at Washington's alleged duplicitous practice of double-dealing on issues concerning China's core interests especially on Taiwan, and blame the U.S. for the breakdown of bilateral communications, despite the fact that it was Beijing that had repeatedly declined to accept phone calls from Washington. Uh, the Xinhua uh, article said, uh, talk for the sake of talk will do little to remove obstacles in the path of a sound relationship, and urged Washington to take concrete steps to demonstrate complete sincerity and deliver on its promises. It also said uh, if the United States is obsessive about playing its trainers-faced game, then no means of communication can call a halt to the downward spiral of its relations with China. Just days after we see this kind of reconnection between the US and China in their 
diplomatic relations. We're building up to this G7 meeting in Hiroshima. Everything we've seen, the evidence suggests that the G7 is going to issue a statement about economic coercion of other countries, and this is going to be targeting China. What do you think are the primary concerns in this G7 meeting, and how do you think Beijing is going to respond should this statement about economic coercion targeting China comes out? I think China is watching warily as Japan and the U.S. are mobilizing their allies and partners to take a tough stance on China and Russia at the G7 summit and a series of multilateral gatherings on satellites this weekend. But the China factor, along with the strengthening of China-Russia alignment, have been the most important driving force behind Japan's recent diplomatic overdrive. So defying Beijing's harsh criticism of uh, Tokyo's assertion that any contingency in Taiwan would amount to a contingency for Japan, Japan's Prime Minister Fumio Kishida has doubled down and said last month in, uh, with an, in an interview with international media that uh, peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait is not just important for Japan, but the international community and the world more broadly as well. And you can see just how far in Kishida is to this thinking because it's not just he's got the quad meeting going on. Uh, he's just overseen a branch office, which is basically one person, but still NATO setting up in Japan. This also is a very focused on that region and doing exactly what he suggests there. What else from the G7 agenda are you seeing, Jiang Tao, that is of interest to China? Quite a lot, actually. Uh, Kashida has actually invited multiple countries, including India, South Korea, Australia, Vietnam, Brazil, Indonesia, to the G7 summit in Hiroshima in a bid to expand the U.S.-led alliance to include emerging emerging economies. Uh, apart from the Ukraine crisis, China obviously will be the elephant in the room as Japan and the U.S. seek to get more countries on board. And how to reduce the global economic and supply, supply chain dependency on China, curb China's technological development, and counter China's assertiveness on Taiwan, the South China Sea, and the East China Sea. Uh, actually, according to the U.S. ambassador to Japan, Ram Amenu, apart from a separate G7 session on China focusing on Beijing's economic coercion against other countries, G7 countries may include it in the final uh, G7 communique and take action, including those on trade and investment, to deter and defend against China's alleged economic intimidation and retaliation. As you said, another focal point will be a planned trilateral between Japan, South Korea, and the US to firm up their security alliance to deal with North Korea's nuclear ambitions, China's growing influence, and Russia's aggression, uh, Russian's aggression against Ukraine. Uh, China's expressed concerns, actually, about this emerging uh, trilateral military alliance between China's two Asian neighbors and Washington, after the rapid improvements of, of ties between South Korea and Japan since March. Beijing actually sees the court as an Asian NATO aimed at containing and surprising China. And then Modi is expected to visit the White House next month before hosting the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in New Delhi in July, and then the G20 Summit in September. A Chinese President Xi Jinping is expected to attend both events in India. So let's talk about Qin Gang, China's foreign minister. He is across Europe right now, visiting European leaders, talking about China's role in helping to try and bring peace in this war in Ukraine. He's also confirmed a visit to Australia later this year. Qin Gang has a lot on his riding on his shoulders right now. Uh, yes, uh, but I think it's, uh, it's a bit too early to tell whether it's a success or not. Uh, but I think Beijing's message is clear. If we look at, uh, I mean, as a whole, I mean, uh, if we look at a flurry of Beijing's recent diplomacy, including Qinggang's meeting with uh, U.S. Ambassador Nicholas Burns last week, his three-nation European tour, which coincided with uh, Wang Yi's Vienna talk talks with Jake Sullivan, I think it's clear that Beijing wants to send an olive branch to Europe and the West in the lead-up to the G7 summit in Japan this weekend, which expected to be tough on China. 
And also Europe is in the middle of major review of its policy on China. Uh, Beijing's message is that despite its tough rhetoric, it still wants to repair its image, uh, still wants to repair its image, resume engagement, uh, boost trade ties and ease tensions with the US and Europe. And I think it's also interesting to watch how Qinggang chose to deliver different messages in different places. He conveyed Beijing's message about resuming and expanding high-level communication with the U.S. during meeting with Burns on Monday, just ahead of Wang Yi's talks with Sullivan on Wednesday and Thursday in Austria. And he, he then made a stop in Potsdam. He then made a stop in Potsdam in the suburb of Berlin to deliver a message about Taiwan, which has been a key point of contention between China and the U.S.-led West. Uh, Potsdam is where the Potsdam Declaration was signed in July 1945, shortly before Japan's surrender. And Beijing has cited the treaty repeatedly to back its claims over Taiwan. Then Qinggang called for joint efforts with Europe to oppose Cold War mentality in Norway when EU foreign ministers gathered, gathered in neighboring Sweden. He also clashed with his German counterpart who questioned China's self-claimed neutrality on Ukraine and pledged to make a necessary necessary response to Europe. <clears throat> he also clashed with his German counterpart who questioned China's self-claimed neutrality on Ukraine and pledged to make a necessary response to EU's planned sanctions on Chinese firms over their ties with Russia. But generally speaking, I doubt if things are moving in China's favor. Despite some initial signs suggesting a thaw in U.S.-China ties and Europe's willingness to increase engagement with, with China. Apart from Taiwan, Ukraine appears to be the biggest barrier as Brussels has um, become increasingly clear that EU-China ties hinge on China's willingness to exert pressure on, on Russia to help end the war. Well, Xi Jinping, we have been speaking for a number of years now uh, on this podcast and other podcasts. I've never felt like we've been at a more complicated time. Geopolitical relationships of China and the countries around the world. There's so much going on right now. So much coming up over these weeks. There's already things we haven't mentioned about the the Central Asia summit that's going on. The scheduled visit of Xi Jinping to India. So many things coming up. At least people are talking, and we're so lucky to have you to listen to Xi Jinping, senior diplomacy correspondent for the South China Morning Post. We'll watch for your reports and analysis on SCMP.com. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Jared, for your kind words. Thanks for listening in, and a reminder that all of our editors and reporters around the world will be filing stories and analysis on the G7 meeting. You'll get that as well as everything else that's happening in mainland China, Hong Kong, and around the world at scmp.com. And as you read the daily updates of what craziness is happening in the development of AI, ChatGPT, and the quest for regulation of this technology. A reminder, we've got a great three-part series that might just be one of the few podcasts in the world where you can hear comparison of Chinese, American, and European approaches to AI regulation. I hope you get to listen to it. My name is Jared Watt. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.